Today's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and then 8, verse 3. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, father, God sent him to his land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, seventy-five in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Sheshem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Sheshem for a certain sum of money. <laughs> As the time drew near for God to fulfil his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then... A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors, ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in the speech and action. 
When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who has led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made to God. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. 
You, have, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At, at this, they covered their ears and, yet, and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Dragging him out, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in, his, in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, and dra he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Well, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Shannon. And good morning, everyone, and welcome along to Church on the Couch. My name is Mark Curran. If we haven't met, I am the Associate Pastor at Trinity Church Orgate, and it's wonderful to be joining you online this morning. This is quite a different experience for all of us, but we're still sitting under God's word and we're still trusting that God's spirit is going to be working powerfully in us and through us as we gather together. What a great speech we've just heard from Stephen here in the book of Acts. But as we think about great speeches over time, so often it's the simplicity of the speeches which makes them brilliant. Like we think about Martin Luther King, I have a dream, clear and simple. Uh, what about Winston Churchill during the Second World War? We will fight on the beaches, clear and simple. There's John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, clear and simple. But then we come to Stephen's speech, and at least at a first reading, it's not so clear and simple, is it? But it's brilliant nonetheless because it's a devastating critique of religion that has lost touch with God's mission purposes because it's missed Jesus. It's a spirit-empowered message that his audience can only respond to with violence. If you're joining us the first time this morning in our ACT series, welcome. It's great to have you along. It's been an exciting few weeks. We've seen the 120 followers at the start of ACT's have grown to well over 5,000. And this hasn't happened by human cleverness, but by the Holy Spirit working through the bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not all smooth sailing though, because one of those believers, a man called Stephen, is finding himself in the firing line today. We're going to look firstly at the charges that have been laid against Stephen, then the defense that Stephen makes against those charges, and then finally, the outcome of the trial. Now, you may remember that we met Stephen last week. Stephen was one of the seven men who were chosen to help with the distribution of food. Stephen was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. What we see in today's passage is that he was not just a faithful servant, but a gifted speaker as well. His opponents can't stand up to his wisdom which isn't surprising because it's been given to him by the Holy Spirit. 
in the end, they resort to stirring up some influential Jewish authorities and calling on false witnesses to accuse him. And they lay two charges against Stephen. The first charge is of speaking against the temple. Have a look at verse 13. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. Well, verse 14, we have heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place. Now, quite likely, Stephen here is quoting the words that Jesus himself uses in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days time. Of course, Jesus isn't referring to the temple itself. He's referring to his own body. The second charge is that Stephen has been speaking against the law, saying that Jesus is going to change the customs that Moses brought to the Jewish people. Now, we think back to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus proclaims, I have not come to fulfill the law, and the, uh, sorry, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so Stephen has been teaching about how the law and the temple both find their fulfillment in Jesus. But what he said, it's been negatively taken out of context and it's been used to make Stephen look like a blasphemer. And so these are serious charges that Stephen is facing here. The temple and the law were both hugely important for the Jews. The temple was God's holy place. It was where God met with his people. And the law, well, that was God's word given to his people. It wouldn't have been hard to really stir people up with accusations like these. It's a tense scene. Everyone is looking at Stephen to see what he's going to say to this. And Luke tells us that Stephen's face is like the face of an angel. Now, what we're meant to see here is a parallel between Stephen and Moses. We read way back in Exodus chapter 34 that as Moses was coming down the mountain with the law that God had given to him to give to his people, his face was radiant. And Stephen, as he stands on trial, accused of speaking against that law, his face is radiant as well. Luke wants us to see that it's Stephen, not his accusers, who is truly faithful to the law and to Moses. And so Stephen launches into his defence, beginning at the start of chapter 7. And it may seem to us like a bit of an odd defence. See, I think personally, if I was hauled before the courts, accused of a crime that might get me killed, I'd be in a panicked rush to convince everyone that I was innocent and get out of there quickly. But Stephen doesn't do that. Stephen launches into a 49-verse summary of the Old Testament. Why? Why does he do this? Well, he's actually responding to the two charges that have been laid against him. Or more to the point, he's turning these charges around against his accusers. Now, he focuses on four key figures of Israel's history, four key figures who his listeners would have been very familiar with. Firstly, there's Abraham. Secondly, there's Joseph. Thirdly, Moses. And fourth, Solomon. And he does this to show them using facts from scripture that they cannot deny that it is the religious devotion of these Jewish people who he's speaking to that has caused them to miss the point. And he makes two arguments. The first argument is that God is not and never has been contained by a temple. 
And the second argument is that it's those accusing Stephen who have actually misunderstood and disobeyed the law. All right, so let's trace both of these arguments through Stephen's speech. Firstly, God is not contained by a temple. God's relationship with his people Israel began with Abraham in Mesopotamia. This was centuries before the temple was built, and it was miles and miles away from Jerusalem where the temple was eventually built. God didn't need a temple to meet with Abraham and to make the covenant promises that defined Israel as a nation. God didn't need a temple when he was with Moses in Egypt, when he appeared to, to sorry, with Joseph in Egypt. And when he appeared to Moses in the desert of Midian in verse 33, it was holy ground that Moses was standing on. But there was no temple and it was a long way from Jerusalem. God was with his people in Egypt. Again, no temple involved, rescuing them from slavery, bringing them to the land that he had promised them, the land where centuries later, Solomon would eventually build a temple for God. But even then, God was not contained by this place. Stephen shows the foolishness of such a thought by quoting the prophet Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, God says, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me? How ridiculous to think that the sovereign God, the God who created the earth and everything in the universe, that this God could be contained in a structure built by human hands. God, says Stephen, is a God who is on the move from Mesopotamia to Egypt to Midian to Jerusalem. God is not limited by distance. He's uncontained. Israel, though, they've always wanted to have a God who they can contain. From the golden calf that they worship in the desert uh, to the idol gods of Assyria and Babylon, They've wanted a God who they can visualize, a God who they can contain. But that's not the God of the Bible. God is not contained by a temple and never has been. And secondly, second argument Stephen makes, it's not him, but it's his accusers who have disobeyed the law. How does Stephen show this? Well, he reminds them that as much as the Jewish people uphold Moses as being a great hero of the faith, the cold, hard truth is that Moses, during his own lifetime, was constantly rejected by the Jewish people. Moses was sent by God to be a ruler and to be a deliverer. Uh, he performed wonders and signs, just like Stephen did. He received living words from God to be able to pass down to his people. But he was rejected by his people. He was pushed aside when he tried to settle a dispute. Who made you ruler and judge over us? They asked. Our ancestors refused to obey him, Stephen reminds them in verse 39. And this is a familiar story right throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? God's messengers rejected by their own people. In Joseph's case, rejected and left for dead by his very own brothers. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Stephen asks the Sanhedrin members. In verse 52, and you are just like them. See, your ancestors, they persecuted the prophets who foretold of the coming of the righteous one. And you, well, you killed the righteous one himself. 
Moses himself had told the Israelites back in verse 37 that God would raise up a prophet like himself. And from that time onwards, the ministry of the prophets had been pointing towards the coming of Jesus. In fact, the law itself with all of its requirements and all of its sacrifices was pointing to the coming of Jesus. And it was no longer obedience to the law that was the true requirement of God's people, but it was faith in Jesus who had perfectly obeyed that law. No one can become right with God by being a good person and fully obeying the law because it's impossible. We all sin. We all fall short. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're, you're still working out where you're at with Jesus, it's great that you're with us. We're so glad that you've tuned in this morning. This is a really important point here to understand. We're not saved by being good religious people. We're not saved by ticking all the boxes that good religious people tick. We're saved by admitting that we fall short in our own strength and by our own goodness. We're saved by trusting that the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place, that that was enough to cover our sins and to make us right with God. But the Jews have missed this because they've resisted the Holy Spirit who bears witness to Jesus. They've received the law, but they haven't obeyed it because they fail to see that the law is fulfilled only in Jesus. And it's the same with the temple as well. They fail to see that Jesus has replaced the temple. Jesus is now the place where God meets with his people. That's why the Apostle Paul writes, in the book of 1 Corinthians, that both individual believers and the church as a whole are God's temple because God dwells in us and with us by his Holy Spirit poured out on all who have trusted in Jesus. See, within 40 years of these events taking place, this speech that Stephen gave, the temple was gone. It had been destroyed by the Romans. But the gospel message was spreading like wildfire through the known world. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Where does this land for us? Well, firstly, what we have to see is that a building is not what makes us right with God. Going to church on a Sunday is not what saves us, which is probably a big relief given the current circumstances. There's nothing about the religious practices that we do in our Sunday gatherings that makes us spiritually right. Back in my days working as an engineer, I had a, a guy that I worked with who I was chatting to about Christianity and he made it clear that he thought the teaching of the Bible was absolute rubbish, was not having a bar of it. But then he told me that he still went to church every now and then because he knew that he was unclean. He knew that there were things he'd done that weren't right and he felt that need to be cleansed and so he went to church every now and then which is really sad because going to church is never going to make him clean it's never going to make anyone clean going to church is not what makes him right with God that happens only by accepting Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life now don't get me wrong going to church is a great thing it's a very biblical thing to do. I highly recommend it when, when conditions favour it. Uh, and I'm sure we're all going to appreciate it a whole lot more meeting together as a church once this coronavirus situation is out of the way. 
but going to church is not what saves us. You might remember last year there was a there was a huge deal made when the cathedral at Notre Dame was damaged by fire. But at the end of the day, it's just a building. Sure, it's a it's a historical and, and architecturally magnificent building, but it's just a building. The presence of God's Spirit is no more special in that building than anywhere else in the world. Friday, two weeks ago, I caught up with Colin Taylor. Colin is the senior pastor at Trinity Church Woodcroft. It's another church in our network. Uh, we caught up and we went along to Woodcroft College because Marty Fox was giving a talk at one of the chapel services there. Marty is a member of our 9am gathering. Many of you will know him. And he's started a role this year as the church pastor at Woodcroft College. He's got this amazing opportunity to be able to share God's word with 1,500 kids. It's an amazing ministry opportunity that he has. So please, I encourage you to be, be praying for Marty in his role and, and be encouraging him as well. Anyway, Marty thought it would be good to get Colin up the front during the chapel service and be able to introduce him to all of the kids who were there because Colin ran a church that actually met in that same building. Now, Colin was wearing just a normal shirt, normal pair of chinos, pretty, pretty similar to what I've got on at the moment. And Marty, he was trying to, to break down the, the misconceptions that people can have about ministers. He asked Colin, why don't you wear minister robes? And Colin's answer I thought was really helpful, especially given that Marty hadn't given him any heads up that the interview was going to happen. He said, we want to be able to preach the good news about Jesus without putting any barriers in people's way, without causing any distractions. So if I'd rocked up to this school today wearing minister robes, it'd just look really weird. It'd be creating a big barrier between us. We want to represent Jesus well. And so I just dress like a normal person my age. Colin's key motivation here, the, the motivation which drives not just his choice of clothing, but everything in his life and ministry, it's to preach and represent Jesus well. And that's what we have to be on about as a church as well. As a, a church network, we, we really value the buildings that we meet in on a Sunday and the opportunities that they provide us. But when an extreme situation like coronavirus hits us and we, we're limited in the ways that we can meet together, the gospel message doesn't stop. And so our question at a time like this is, how do we make sure that Jesus is still at the centre? You see, doing online church isn't ideal. I think we all admit that. But the priority is the same as what it's always been. So can I ask you, what is it that you most value about church? What is it that you most value about meeting on a Sunday? Is it the fellowship? Is it the music? Is it the, the nice building that we meet in? It has to be Jesus, doesn't it? It has to be the gospel message. It has to be seeing God glorified and seeing people knowing and growing in Jesus. Because if Jesus is not absolutely at the center of what we do as a church and what we truly value in Christianity, then we've missed the point, haven't we? Now, I'm not saying that music and friendships and, and food and all those things that are part of our Sunday gatherings, I'm not saying that these aren't worthwhile things. I'm not saying that they're not things that we should value. But it all has to flow from a desire of knowing and honoring Jesus. 
We are unashamedly a church that is all about faithfully teaching and proclaiming Jesus from the Bible. And everything else serves that. So if we're not starting with Jesus, we've got it all wrong. Back to Stephen. Stephen has been charged with speaking against the temple and against the law. His countercharge to his accusers has been that God isn't restricted to a temple and that both the temple and the law point us to Jesus. He's argued his case decisively from Old Testament history and his listeners have no answer for him. So they kill him. And ironically, in doing so, they prove him even more to be right, don't they? You see, they're just like their ancestors. By covering their ears as Stephen speaks by the Holy Spirit, they're continuing to resist the Spirit. And so they murder another one of God's faithful messengers. This rejection of the gospel message by the Jewish authorities, it prepares us for an important stage in the book of Acts, when the message will go beyond the Jews and to the Gentiles. But before then, Luke wants us to see that Stephen dies well, full of the Holy Spirit, seeing heaven open and the Son of Man standing there, Jesus. And Stephen's final words actually echo Jesus' final words on the cross, except that where Jesus directed his words to the Father, Stephen directs them to Jesus. Jesus, receive my spirit, he cries. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Stephen is killed in part for rejecting the temple as the meeting place between people and God. But he knows that Jesus is the true meeting place between people and God. Now, Perhaps you, you read this account of Stephen's last stand and you think, look, it's courageous and all, but you think to yourself, what a waste. Why does God let a gifted, passionate, valuable person like Stephen die? Why does he shortchange the church in this way? Equally, we might wonder why God shortchanges the church today by letting a virus go through 21st century Adelaide and stopping us from meeting together. Well, on one level, Stephen's death shows us, doesn't it, that God doesn't need Stephen. He uses him, but he doesn't need him. He doesn't need any of us, even the most impressive Christian in the world. God does not need that person. On another level, Stephen's death, as untimely as it may seem, it fits in perfectly with God's sovereign purposes. It leads to a persecution breaking out against the church, Believers are scattered throughout Judea and throughout Samaria. Saul comes along and begins to destroy the church. This all sounds bad. But then we think back to the verse right at the start of Acts, which sets the tone for the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus tells his disciples that they're to take the gospel message, not just to Jerusalem, but to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Persecution just happens to be the means that God uses to push the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And what we'll see as we keep reading through the book of Acts is that the persecution will increase, but the gospel message will continue to spread. Stephen has been silenced, but the gospel message 
hasn't been. Religion, we've seen, is out of touch when it seeks to contain God, when it doesn't recognise that the person and the work of Jesus are absolutely central to God's mission purposes. That's the message that Stephen has died proclaiming and defending. But in contrast, Jesus is bringing about his purposes in and through the church, despite opposition, despite obstacles, whether that's persecution or whether it's coronavirus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you are a God who is in control, a God who is working his mission purposes through the church and through the world. We pray that, like Stephen, that we would trust you, that we would trust your sovereignty and your purposes, and that in spite of whatever obstacles come our way, whether that's opposition, whether that's circumstances like what we're facing now, we ask that you would be bringing about your purposes powerfully. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is limited by space. You're not a God who is limited to a church building or a temple or traditions or anything like that. You're a God who is on the move. Back when the Bible was put together and still today, you are the same faithful God today. Uh, we thank you that we have Jesus who is at the centre of who we are as your people. We pray that we would never lose sight of this, that of all the good things, all the worthwhile things that we do as a church, that we would never ever lose sight of Jesus and that we would bring honour and glory to you in every way and that you would be using us, working through us to bring about your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.